Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to season 3, episode 1 of Kicking the Kariaki with me, Elena Guthrie. This is the original intersectional feminist podcast that aims to subvert and challenge the norm by providing a platform to voices, stories and narratives ignored by the mainstream. If you don't know what kairiarchy means, and trust me, I didn't before doing this, let's quickly define it. You probably heard of feminists smashing the patriarchy, but we're going one step further and kicking the kairiarchy. The patriarchy assumes gender is the main inequality individuals can face but we just know that's not true. The kairiarchy takes into consideration all the various levels of privilege and oppression an individual might experience. So this goes beyond gender inequality to talk about race, sexuality, gender identity, class, physical and mental ability, everything. So instead of smashing the patriarchy, we're kicking the motherfucking kairiarchy. Also, shout out to Kimberly Crenshaw for coining the term intersectional feminism. We use that a lot and it's important to give credit where credit is due. On to the episode. I actually wasn't going to originally release this series of episodes straight away, but given what can only be described as a crisis that's going on in Alabama right now, the discussion around reproductive rights has never been more important. There are a lot of voices that are being given a lot of airtime right now. 25 eyes, six nays, one abstention, House Bill 314 passes. The Republican-controlled state Senate voted 25 to 6 to make it a Class A felony for doctors to perform abortions in Alabama. It will become the most restrictive anti-abortion law in the country. Essentially making abortion a crime. But we think that there are some important ones missing out on the action. And that's where we come in. In this series of episodes, we're going to be chatting about decolonizing contraception, what does reproductive health care look like for trans people, how has austerity affected our sexual health services, what did getting an abortion look like in the 60s, what does getting an abortion look like today, and we'll be hearing from the very first trans man in the UK to give birth. So there is a lot to look forward to. But let's focus on now. Abortions in the UK have been legal since 1967, with around 200,000 happening last year alone. And yet there is still so much shame and taboo that surrounds discussing them. So let's kickstart this series, try and help dismantle a little bit of that shame and taboo and normalise the discussions around abortion by talking to one seriously badass activist, Diane Mundy. She was a trailblazer who was there on the front line in the 60s campaigning for abortion rights and despite retiring in the 90s, she is still today fearlessly campaigning for access to abortion services. Before we get started, I just wanted to flag up that we will be talking about abortion in some level of detail. So if that's not for you or if that's a bit too much right now, that's absolutely fine. If you want to just stop listening at any time, please do. With that in mind, enough from me. Let's chat to Diane. My name's Diane Monday. I'm 88. I live in a small village of 30 miles or so from London. I've been a widow for, oh, in three days' time, it'll be 23 years. I have three sons who I'm closely in touch with and their families, and four grandsons ranging from 32 to 24, who I see and really have quite a lot to do with their lives. 
Diane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about this. I'm really honoured to have you as a guest because I think it's fair to say that you're a bit of a legend. You know, you you really are a pioneer in this field and, you know, talking about abortion and abortion rights. And also, like, a super cool grandma as well. I don't think I'd be able to talk to my grandma about stuff like this. So... Let's kick this off with talking about your story. So can you tell us about what your experience was of having an abortion? I actually had an abortion way back in 1961. It was still illegal, but it had started to be talked about and there were ways around the law. But in fact, at that time, when I was your age, when I was growing up, it was a word that was never spoken, never written. It was a closed subject. And it wasn't until many years later when I started talking about it, I actually discovered it was every woman's, if not her own, her sister's or her mother's or her friend's experience. But it was under a grubby corner of the carpet that was never lifted up. I first came across it when... um, I suppose I was very early 20s, and a young woman I knew, when a young woman I knew, a dressmaker, a married woman with three young children, died from a backstreet abortion. It was the first time I'd ever heard about it, and I was utterly shocked. And I was working, I was doing research at one of the London teaching hospitals, and I mentioned it as lunchtime to a group of the doctors I was working with. And one of them said to me, well, you've led a very sheltered life. Stay behind after work on Friday, and we'll show you what real life is like. And I discovered that... All the wards of the big London teaching hospitals, certainly, and I now know many of the provincial smaller hospitals too, put wards aside Friday, Saturday night to admit women who had botched um, abortions performed by illegal abortionists or by themselves or a friend. And that was the reality. And I realized then how fortunate women who could afford to subvert the law by going to Harley Street were. Um, Because the girl I knew had died. Never thought I'd find myself in that position. Got on with my life rather forgot about it, got married, had three sons in three and a half years. Contraception wasn't then what it is now. It was still very much a chance. If you were super fertile, as I obviously was, um, one just kept becoming pregnant despite trying to use contraception. And I became pregnant for a fourth time and suddenly realized that nothing and nobody would make me continue with that pregnancy. I was happily married. We had enough money. We weren't rich, but we could cope. And I often in the years since have remembered that feeling, that internal drive that this was not the time to have a child, or in my case, another child, that one had reached one's limit, and that one would go to any lengths at all to end that intolerable pregnancy. And that feeling has stayed with me over the years, and perhaps helped to drive me campaign for legal, safe, untraumatic abortion for all women who needed it. 
I, after doing a lot of asking around, found my way to Harley Street, where I was sent to see a psychiatrist, and that was 10 guineas, 10 pounds in 10 shillings in old money, 10 pounds and 50 pence in new money. And that was a lot of money. It was almost what my husband earned in a week. So in today's terms, it was a huge amount. The psychiatrist was out doing much except asking me a few questions, said that, yes, my life was at risk because I was suicidal at the thought of another child, and said he would send me to see a gynecologist who would do it picked up the phone, made an appointment for me to go that evening. I saw a gynecologist. I was terrified when I got there, and he didn't make life any easier by opening a cupboard in his desk and saying, you look absolutely exhausted, and getting out a bottle of gin. And all the stories that I had by then read about people drinking gin and jumping off a ladder came back to my mind. There were tales about abortion absolutely everywhere. If one started talking about it, it was a nasty, dirty secret. And I'm really delighted that I've stopped it being quite a secret and dirty and nasty. The women do still tend to feel guilty. I had my abortion. It was initially quoted as £150, and that was a small fortune. There was no way we could afford that. And I remember very naively saying, I don't mind sharing a room. I don't mind taking sandwiches in. We just can't afford that. And it was bargained down to £90, which was still a huge sum, probably about £2,000 in today's money. I went. I had the abortion. I woke up from the anaesthetic and I was remembering the other young woman who I had known five, six years previously, who in fact had died. She too was married with three young children, but she was dead. Her husband was a widower. Her children had no mother. I was alive, much to my relief. And my husband had a wife, and my three sons had a mother, all because I had a checkbook to wave in Hartley Street. And I remember, and it was probably the after effects of the anesthetic, thinking, I will fight if needs be for the rest of my life. And that, I think, was just a form of words. Little did I know that at 88, I'd still be fighting for women's ability to choose what they did with their bodies. And I found then that I would become active in the Abortion Law Reform Association, of which, in fact, I was already a member. I joined it at the time of the lidamide, the drug that left so many babies being born with enormous deformities. And when I had first really thought, if ever I had something, and at that time, German measles was the thing that um, deformed a lot of developing fetuses. If ever I knew I was carrying a fetus with that prospect in front of it, I would want to end that pregnancy. And so I joined the Abortion Law Reform Association, but I'd done nothing. But following my abortion, I became active. I went to the AGM. I stood up and shocked many of the people there by saying, I have had an abortion. Um, and it all started from there. I was, I was on the committee 
that year, I became vice chairman the next year and became the spokesperson for what became a very successful campaign. Six, seven bills in Parliament and finally David Steele's Act becoming law 51 years ago. Diane, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I got really emotional listening to you, actually, because... Really? Yeah, I was, like, sat My here... croaky old woman's voice. No, no, I was really... It, it really touched me. And I think because the issues of, you know, of fertility and abortion and women's abilities to have the, auto, you know, the autonomy over their body, their own bodies, has always been, I feel like, so synonymous with, you know, women's rights and the feminist movement. And, and the ability to not have that autonomy um, is really quite terrifying and that really does scare me. And I can only imagine what it would have been like to be a young woman in the 60s and not having access to the services, the world of information that we have today. It, and it's really heartbreaking as well. You know, you were talking about your, your dressmaker um, who died, you know, and she left and she was a mother of three and she left her um, uh, with, you know, a husband, a widower. And just thinking about how many women's stories, how similar that story and narrative must have been for so many families and for young women. Well, it estimated at that time when I started campaigning in the early 1960s that there were well in excess of 100,000 women a year who had backstreet abortions and having over the years done quite a bit of research, I'm sure the upper figure which was often touted, and clearly these were guesswork because very few of them were reported. Women, backstreet abortionists whose customers, if you can call them that, died or were very severely ill, tended to go to prison. And a study was done at one time, and at any one time there were 40 to 50 women in Holloway Prison at any one time for having performed abortions. My guess is it was at least a quarter of a million. And I actually had a relative who was a midwife and at one time also thought she was going to be a nun and went and worked in the East End at what is Nonata's house in the call the midwife stories and she worked at the real one and she was really quite religious well she thought she was going to be a nun and we started off when she was a student in London um, having huge discussion she spent weekends with me I was the nearest relation and bringing her colleagues other young doctors nursing friends having huge arguments about abortion and she was adamantly against it and she had not been working there for more than six months when she said to me and I'd never forgotten the phrase every Peabody's Buildings has its missing needle Nora and Peabody's Buildings with the big tenements in the east end of London mainly put up and subsidised by the Peabody's Trust and they were everywhere and her words were every Peabody's building has its knitting needle Nora she saw the reality of life for women and was so moved by it she forgot her religious theoretical anti-abortion stance and became a strong supporter Can you um, explain to us what a knitting needle Nora is? That was a woman who used a knitting needle to procure other women's abortions, sometimes for money, sometimes being blackmailed because it was known that she perhaps helped her daughter or the daughter of a friend. Helping them was the phrase that was always used. And they were everywhere because this was the there was no effective contraception i remember very clearly the first meeting 
I ever spoke at publicly. And it was a local townswomen's guild, an afternoon one. And in those days, women's clubs were terrifically important, a big part of women's lives. There was no television. Um, None of the things they have now, most didn't have transport. And so they went to their monthly meetings, um, regardless of the subject matter. And it was the older ladies, and they were ladies, they all wore hats and gloves and were, were, were very polite. And they went to the afternoon meetings, whereas the young mums went to the evening ones. I went actually in fear and trembling. I'd already made up my mind that I had to say I have had an abortion. It was no good it being spoken about by philosophers and gynecologists. It had to be women. And I really saw an echo of that in the recent Irish campaign, um, which I watched very, very closely. And I'm in little doubt it was the very brave women there that came forward and told their stories of their backstreet abortions or their journeys to England to have safe abortions that really did play the largest single part in changing the law then. And they were very brave, but in those days it wasn't talked about. But I stood up at that town's women's guild meeting and I said, I have had an abortion. And during the tea break, and I can remember it was nice, dainty China, and all these very polite ladies in their gloves and hats came up to me one after the other and said something like, you know, dear, I had an abortion. I've never told anybody before. It's only my husband knows. But it was in the recession. It was when there was no work around. We already had two, three, four children, and we just couldn't afford another. I couldn't have had another child. We couldn't have looked after it. And that became my common experience. Wherever I went and wherever I said, I have had an abortion. I was flooded sometimes with letters. I've still got a lot of them. And and with people, if it was a public meeting, saying, I've had an abortion. I never told anybody before. And that was the secret nature of it. And sadly enough, women now are reluctant to come forward and say, I have had an abortion. Yet we know from the figures that one in three adult women in this country will end a pregnancy deliberately sometime during their life. One thing that I'm keen to cover is um, we mentioned knitting needle Nora's and how they, it was, you know, using knitting needles essentially to... Knitting needles, crochet Yeah, to, to, to terminate pregnancies. What other forms of backstreet abortions happened? Were there other methods? Yes, hot water with all sorts of things in it, syringed into a woman's vagina, hoping they would penetrate the um, the, the uterus, the cervix. Um, they were common. Women in very, very hot baths, some of them are so hot they scalded themselves. There was the idea that drinking gin um, and then moving heavy furniture around, there were all sorts of methods, but the backstreet abortionists tended to use some kind of sharp instrument with the idea, I guess, of actually getting into the uterus, into the womb, and dislodging the fetus. Others of using toxic um, things like caustic soda, um, uh, and women would use that themselves. Taking quinine was another quite common one because it was no 
found that women in the Raj, women, English women who'd gone out to India had a high rate of miscarriage and women out there tended to take quinine regularly to prevent malaria. In fact, it wasn't quinine. Quinine is a poison and often damaged the woman but left the pregnancy intact. It was the Indian climate um, and conditions generally that caused high miscarriage rate, but quinine was sold. When I'd been with the Abortion Law Reform Association for some years, we heard, we knew there were rubber shops, they were called, that sold a very crude kind of condom. Um, there were streets everywhere with the rubber shops, and certainly a great many in areas like Soho, the centre of Birmingham. And we had two of our committee members, one of the committee members, and a friend of his who was a medical student, um, did an experiment. They wrapped themselves in college scarves, didn't cut their hair, and went round to all the rubber shops, um, 120 of them in London and Birmingham, saying, my girl's period, my girlfriend's period's overdue. Can you sell me something to bring it on? And they bought 60 or 70 different remedies, very expensive. And we had them analysed in the Department of Pharmacology at Birmingham University. None of them would really have caused a miscarriage, but many of them would have harmed the woman. In fact, um, a side story, I had them all in a, a bag, a hold all, because and I was in London on my way to the BBC to do a television programme about them. And I had a near miss in Oxford Street with a bus. And instead of thinking, oh, God, I could have been run over, all I was thinking was, oh, this bag might have come open. And these had been scattered all over the road. And nobody would ever have believed me as to why I was carrying them, because it was widely said that I did abortions. The village I lived in, everybody, when we had a new car, a new second-hand car, the rumour went round that it had been bought with my money from doing abortions on the kitchen table. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so what kind of backlash did you 
experience, you know, because you had an abortion, because you were so vocal about it. Give us an idea. Well, it was mixed. First of all, there were the women who came to me and said I had an abortion. And they were the ones who who had most impact on me. They made me determined to go on. They said things like, I support what you're doing. What can I do to help? Can I give some money to the campaign? It was quite touching. Some of them obviously were were still tight for money, but they would give me a few shillings for the campaign and say, I don't want my granddaughters to have to go through what I went through. Those were the ones that really kept me buoyed up. The others just made me cross. Um, I had red paint poured all over the bonnet of my car and a notice left in the windscreen saying this is the blood of the children you've murdered. There were... um, There there was a period of three to four years in the early 60s where my telephone used to go during the night, all hours of the day, and there was the sound of a baby. It sounded like a very, very young baby crying, and then a voice saying, Mama, Mama, you killed me. And you couldn't filter out telephone calls then. Um... My children got some stick at school whenever I'd been on television. Uh, It could be quite unpleasant. And, of course, I went to some meetings and certainly late in the campaign when it was clear we were going to get a change in the law, the anti-abortionists used to arrange coach loads of... Um, usually Catholic churches arranged it and they would arrive at the venue an hour early and just pack the meeting place out and the minute I appeared or stood up to speak they'd all chant murderer, murderer, murderer. In fact, I had a tweet last week um, where there was something about me. Somebody reproduced an article saying, I wish there was a thumbs down on Twitter. This woman deserves to go to hell and a whole lot more stuff like that. It's probably still there. So it's fair to say that there was a, uh, there was a bit of stigma surrounding it then? There was a bit of stigma for me about women who had had their pregnancies ended, felt, and I still feel sad about this, a huge amount of stigma. I still find myself in, I suppose I'd call it counselling mode, talking to younger women who still feel guilty. And I say to them, you have nothing to feel guilty about. The anti-abortionists did their work well in one respect only, and that was in making women not feel all right about feeling all right having had an abortion. And I say to them, you were the brave ones. You were the ones who wanted to take control of your life, who wanted to be able to care for, to plan for the children you were going to have. To have an abortion is traumatic for many, many years, even when it was legal. And for instance, for women in Northern Ireland now, it is still extremely difficult. You were the brave ones. You took responsibility for your own life. Children are not like puppies to be brought into the world willy-nilly. You were being a responsible non-parent by saying this is not the right time and the right place for me to have a child. You were the responsible person. You shouldn't feel ashamed. You regret getting pregnant when you didn't want a child, but you shouldn't regret your abortion. And that is still something I find myself still saying to people. What does it look like now then, you know, as someone who is still active in this campaign? We did 
retire in 1990, um, but I got dragged back in some years ago when the decriminalizing movement started. I became so angry that 50 years has passed. The world has changed beyond recognition in that 50 years. You have read about that, you and your generation. I've lived through it. Everything is different. The society is different. The role of women is totally different. And technology has moved on. We can put a man on the moon. We can grow babies in test tubes. We can do all sorts of things. And But we are still stuck with the law of 1861 that penalizes with life imprisonment for women who try to take control of their own lives. We have tablets now to take for abortion, but you still need to get two men to give their consent, usually men, male doctors, two doctors who probably have never seen you before and will never see you again, make that decision which alters your life. It prevents a life that is maybe unwanted coming into the world. And you have to sit back and do what they say. The law now needs changing again. What I said the day we had the last all-night debate in Parliament and knew that abortion would become legal, we sat on the terrace at the House of Commons eating strawberries and drinking champagne. And I said then, I am only drinking half a glass of champagne. The job is only half a done. And at the moment when I say, oh, I can't come and speak at another meeting, too old and tired, they say to me, don't you want your other half glass of champagne? We need you to come and talk. And we do need this law change. It's iniquitous. There's a law that was formed in when Queen Victoria was on the throne. It's still used to control women. What's the law? You mentioned it briefly just then, but can you explain it a little bit more? I can, yes. What we did in 1967 with the Abortion Act of 1967 was leave the 1861 law in place, which says that any woman shall attempt to or succeed in ending her pregnancy, and anybody who helps her can be imprisoned for life. In 1967, we made some exemptions from that, and those are that if two doctors agree that the pregnancy has not exceeded, it, it was 28 weeks, but it's 24 now, has not exceeded 24 weeks, and the woman fits into the categories laid down by the law, a pregnancy may be terminated as long as it is done in an NHS or a registered premises. And we still have that stupidity here now, which means that when women have to swallow a pill to end their pregnancy, they have to do it in a registered premises. Um, so all has happened. The old law state and is used for prosecuting illegal abortions, but also women who do not. And women have been prosecuted here and in Ireland for buying the um, abortion pill on the Internet. That is still illegal because the law that says two doctors have to agree and this has to have all the right bits of paper filled in is not complied with. So they then are actually prosecuted under the 1861 Act. 
Wow, so in theory, um, you could still go to prison for life. You can, but women do. There was a woman, I think, in Newcastle who bought the pill for her 16-year-old daughter who'd been raped, and she was in prison because she bought the pill. If you tomorrow go and buy the pill on the internet and it's readily available, you are breaking the abortion law here and face imprisonment. I guess one of the most frustrating things about this is that laws like this tend to end up affecting the most vulnerable people. Is that fair to say? Indeed, because anybody now um, who can work the system, it's still worse. It's the vulnerable women now, the ones perhaps with a controlling or an abusive husband who live some way away from a town, have to get to see the two doctors, have to go back, have to go on the premises to swallow the first pill. Um, women with more money, more privilege, a car, the ability to pay a, an expensive fare to a town where it's done. It's nothing like we had the slogan, one more for the rich and the another for the rest back in the 60s. But up to a point, this is still true. And it's certainly until a few months ago when abortion became legal in Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, was the fact that the women who could afford to come to England had safe legal well, legal here, terminations of pregnancy. And now we have the irony that women in Northern Ireland can come here and have an abortion, but not the ones who have it done in Northern Ireland. They are in the situation. Fortunately, there are many organisations like the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, which I helped to found, and indeed I worked with them for 17 years. Um, they will do the operation for free, but for poorer women to have to travel to England um, is still impossible. What can we do then to be better allies to people having abortions, going through abortions, you know, and then also maybe do we need to think about allyship to maybe older women and people who had abortions, you know, in the 60s? I think that it would be hard to get them to speak out. I believe, and I think we're very close to it, the House of Commons has now twice passed a bill to decriminalise abortion. It's opened up all the old hostilities, hatred, arguments. I've been doing numerous broadcasts, public meetings again, and finally we got some bills through the House of Commons. But, for example, the DUP in Northern Ireland, whom Theresa May gave a billion pounds to, hoping that it would act as an inducement to vote for uh, are solidly against it and voting in the House here. What I think we need now is a concerted push to decriminalise abortion. It's been off the criminal books in Canada now for nearly 30 years. It is a, a, a medical treatment that is perfectly legal and that should be treated as medical treatment, not as a criminal offence. Criminal law should have no part in this. And if young women, your generation, many, many of whom will have had abortions, were to speak out, to start marching, um, to start writing letters to their MPs, to start going and seeing their MPs and saying, I have had an abortion. I am not a criminal. I think it would bring it here much faster. We, it's ironical, we were the pioneers in the Western world of legal abortion, and now we are lagging behind most of Europe, including the Catholic countries, 
including Ireland, um, of all places, which has abortion on request in the first three months of pregnancy, as does Germany, Italy, Spain. We are now the ones that are lagging behind, and it is up to the younger generation of women who have grown up knowing they can be in control of their sexuality, their bodies, their lives, to come forward and see that that law is changed, because not only are we in danger of um, not decriminalizing, we are in some danger of losing the law. One only has to look to America, where, in fact, the law is very threatened, where it is highly restrictive in a majority of states. And I think we cannot be complacent and say that won't happen here. It could there's a lot of work that needs to be done but you know you've offered some really um I guess proactive and like doable insight there so that's really that's really positive is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to platform um or if there's a way that people can find you if they want to talk to you or have questions the floor is yours Diane must be aware that though it shouldn't be it is a privilege to be able to have an abortion still. And privileges have to be looked after. And if we want to get rid of them, we don't abolish the thing that is privileged. We make it available for everybody. I can be found on... um, I I, I use Twitter very limited way. Um, I'm always happy to talk to people, but we need journalists women in position of power and of spreading the word to still talk about it. And I still think our strongest weapon are the words, I have had an abortion and I do not regret it for one moment. Diane, thank you so much. I can't tell you how uh, impactful speaking to you has been you know I, I honestly I feel like I'm I could be talking to one of the suffragettes you know like I really feel like you're you are kind honestly like the, the, the passion and the work that you've done and um, yeah it's really touching so thank you so much for taking the time and thank you so much for all that you've done and continue to do I really appreciate it oh that's kind I really do find it touching when people say thank you Diane, thank you so much for having a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Many thanks. Thank you so much to Diane for taking the time to chat to me about her experiences of accessing abortion in the 60s and then the amazing work that she went on to help legalise abortion in the UK. I mean, an actual legend. Some of the things that stuck out for me when I was talking to Diane was the intersections of class in particular. I went away after chatting to her and did a little bit of research into this. I won't go into too much detail because I honestly could go on forever. But it got me thinking about how obviously what's going on in Alabama is absolutely awful. But it would be ignorant to ignore that this is going on and has been going on in other countries for a long time, even countries that are on our doorstep here in the UK, like Northern Ireland. And this goes further afield to other countries like Argentina. You know, Argentina was in the news recently about rescinding their abortion laws, the Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Malta. In these countries, access to abortion is virtually impossible, meaning that complications due to botched abortions isn't something that is limited to the history books. It's actually a reality. Illegality is forcing the poorest people into desperate practices. So, for example, in these countries where it's illegal, you can buy things like stomach ulcer drugs online. These induce abortions, but that's only if you have internet access and then the reading skills to know how to take them properly. In El Salvador, authorities are known to have encouraged doctors to report women suspected of self-inducing abortion. However, if you dig a little bit deeper into this research, you find that the reports were only from public hospitals accessed by poorer women. Not a single report came from a private hospital. In other words, poor women are more likely to be reported than rich women. 
So my conclusion, we need more women and diverse people in government making our laws and we need more women and more diverse doctors shaping our policies and we need more actions, not just words. So maybe you want to do something at home to help, maybe you want to help address the things that are going on in Northern Ireland. If so, you can go to now for NI. Dot uk and there you can email your mp demanding that they do something to help in northern ireland maybe you're in the position to donate if you are consider yellow fund this is a charity that eases the suffering of the bands in alabama and georgia they provide funding for anyone seeking care at one of alabama's three centers and also help with other barriers to access like flights and accommodation and lastly maybe consider a monthly or one-off donation if you're in the position to to abortion funds. They work at the intersections of race, class and more to break down these barriers and to support women having abortions. Thank you so much again to Diane and thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you rate, review and subscribe. After discussing what abortion looks like in the 60s, Next episode, we'll be fast-forwarding to now. We'll be chatting to Gabriella and we'll be finding out what access to abortion services look like in the UK today. See you then. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.